Uh, well, good morning. You know who I am. I'm uh, Brian, one of our elder candidates here at church, and Rob is taking a well-deserved break at the end of our series in 1 Samuel. So we're going to be working out of the Gospel of Mark this morning, and compared to the Old Testament narrative text that we've been reading over the past months, this will be refreshingly short. So I feel confident in asking you to stand for the reading of God's Word, because it won't be nine chapters this week. <laughs> This is the word of the Lord. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, Do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your kindness to us, that you descend to communicate to us in ways that we can comprehend. And we thank you for your word that constantly reminds us of your faithful love for us. As we spend the next few minutes considering how our fear correlates with our faith and our walk with you, we pray that you would give us a deeper sense of awe and gratitude and love for you, for all the things that you have done for us, that you do for us, and that you will do for us in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, please be seated. Uh, as, as you heard in our short story today, um, this, this story of the disciples, Jesus in a boat in a storm, really is a perfect intersection of um, human fear and how it affects our faith and our walk with the Lord. And um, there's different types of fear. You know, we were at breakfast yesterday, a group of us, and we were talking about... Um, Reluctantly, some of us were admitting our very unhealthy relationship with REI, the outdoor store. And uh, we were talking about the, uh, I don't know, maybe you're from Mars, you just got here on planet Earth yesterday, but REI does a garage sale once a year, and it's the event um, in anywhere. And so we were talking about the fact that when, when you go to the garage sale, it's exciting, but it also suddenly is unexpectedly stressful. So you show up, and there's 800 things that are incredibly cheap, There's 600 people that are looking at the same item that you are. Suddenly you feel compelled. You're filled with stress and anxiety to buy things that you've never wanted before, that you'll never use. And you have like this sudden fear of missing out. You know, FOMO, as they say. I had to check with my 20-year-old daughter whether that's a good use of that. But um, there's also other kinds of fear that we have. We see some of that in the story this morning. We see uh, the disciples experiencing a very real and valid constitutional fear. There's a threat to their lives that's unfolding all around them. And that's part of God's design for us. It's there to protect us from things that can harm us. But really, this heart of the story lies more on a fundamental level spiritually for us in that when we, um, when we fall into deep-seated fears, whether they're around things in our lives that are real or just fantasies that rule our heads and our hearts, we tend to let that affect our faith, and it shapes the way we see God, the way we understand God, and the way that we hear God, and our ability to follow him faithfully. 
oftentimes when we have those experiences, we can look back and see in retrospect that the real threat to our faith isn't a lack of head knowledge about Jesus or about Scripture, but it's the fears that eat away at our hearts and create these doubts that begin to drive us. Here in our story today, what seemed like an ordinary sea crossing became a very real physical threat to the lives of the disciples as they suddenly found themselves caught in a storm. And while this storm exposes the faith of the disciples when faced with real peril, it also, and I think more importantly, shows them and us something about our faith in the Lord and his power in our lives. The main idea, I think, of this story is that this short story shows us that life's most fundamental questions find their answer in Jesus. And we often see Jesus' love and care for us most clearly in the midst of life's most difficult times. So I would like us to consider that uh, by examining the three questions that are kind of naturally embedded into this short story. Uh, There's three questions that are here. First is the existential question. And that just simply means the question of the disciples' existence. They're experiencing an existential threat to their very lives. The second is the faith question. That's the question that Jesus poses directly to the disciples in the midst of this crisis. And that leads to the third and the most important question, and that's the Christological question. That's just a fancy word that simply means the study of Christ. So when we ask, who is Jesus? We're engaging in Christology, as the scholars would say, but that's all that that means. And that's the question that the disciples find themselves asking at the end of this episode in a very real and genuine way. So first is the existential question. And again, that's not like some heady philosophical concept, like what is the meaning and the extent of my existence in this reality as I experience it. It's very gritty and real. It's the very real threat that the disciples find themselves grappling with when a storm is filling their boat with water. Uh, It's important to note that the area that we're talking about is the Sea of Galilee, and it's actually a lake. uh, The topography is that it's almost 700 feet below uh, sea level, and it's surrounded by mountains that reach up to as high about 9,000 feet. And so the the weather pattern that formulates is that cold mountain air will rush down off the mountains. It'll press down onto hot air that sits above the desert lake, and it will force its way down onto the water, whipping up wind waves. And it was very common for this to create sudden violent storms on the Sea of Galilee. Now, as we read in our story, we saw that Jesus and the disciples leave for their lake crossing at the end of the day. They leave at sunset. It's an unusual time to do a sea crossing. Uh, and the picture that Mark paints for us is a firsthand account of Peter the Apostle. It's important to remember that this guy was not only a fisherman, but he spent his entire life on these waters. At least four of these men in the boat would be disciples. And so they would be self-confident in the fact that they could cross the lake with no problems. Uh, the way that ESV describes it is a windstorm, and that's a bit abstract. Maybe a, a better word based on the, um, on the Greek word uh, could be, could be described more like a squall or a hurricane. Basically, it's a weather pattern that's beyond human control. And in verse 38, you see what's almost a throwaway uh, comment that Jesus is um, not disturbed. He's actually in the back sleeping on a cushion through all of it, right? And when we read that, we can, we can empathize with the disciples on why they're so upset with Jesus Uh, Oftentimes, I say this whenever studying the Gospels or talking about them, uh, we unconsciously evaluate the story of the Gospels from a 
an intellectual superiority, meaning that we, we see the entire story, we know all the events, we know how it turns out. And so uh, oftentimes we evaluate it that way without realizing it. It influences how we think about the disciples. But not in this episode. Even if you've never been in a sea, on, on the sea in a storm that's stressful, you can relate to the reality that we all face fears that overwhelm us at any given moment. The point of the picture that Mark is recording for us is that the disciples, some of whom were experienced seagoers, were being terrorized by a power much greater than themselves. And all of their self-confidence gave way to the real possibility of their death. Now on top of that, that would also be influenced by their worldview uh, in the ancient world, especially biblically. Uh, the sea was always depicted as a chaotic force that really represented the ultimate uncontrollable threat in nature. The Old Testament itself is full of language that depicts the sea as being chaotic and dangerous. In the flood account of Genesis 5 through 10, the scripture says the Lord used the flood as uh, every it says the Lord used the flood as his method of judgment on wicked humanity. Particularly in 723, it says every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Scripture highlights that outside of God's intervention, no one can overcome the chaotic threat that the sea represents. There's an old folk song that I'm a fan of. It's called The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And it covers the account of a sinking of an iron freighter that goes down in Lake Superior. And in the middle of that song is a haunting verse that says, Does anybody know where the love of God goes? when the waves turn minutes into hours. The disciples could have wrote that. That was the experience that they were having. The mention of such a primal emotion, such a primal fear, is something that uh, we all relate to. And we have our own experiences with this, whether it's fears that are based on real-life events or whether it's fears that are based on fantasies that simply rule our hearts and our minds in day-to-day life. It hits on a universal theme that I think every person can relate to because it gnaws away at the fundamental questions in life. And that's whether you consider yourself a believer in Jesus Christ or not. If you're here and you don't consider yourself a Christian, you are here because you're a spiritual seeker. There's no coincidence that you're here in the presence of God's people and the preaching of God's word. And because you're a spiritual seeker, I guarantee you there's been moments in your life where you've wondered Is there really a creator that has all power? Power to do anything. And if you are a disciple, we often have the experience where we begin to wonder, does God really care about me and my suffering and the things that worry me? The fear of death that the disciples face highlights the larger existential question that exists for every human being. That's to know that there's a God that cares for us personally and will save us from the things that overwhelm and threaten us in life. And that's why Jesus asked the second question, which is the faith question. This question oozes right out of the story. Even if Jesus never asked the disciples this, we would be wondering, man, I wonder what happened to those guys out there. They really unraveled. In verse 38, the disciples' lack of confidence gives way to outright terror. They ask the teacher accusingly, don't you care that we're going to drown? (laughs) 
You know, Jesus' response is so interesting because it's not like he wakes up suddenly and he's like, oh, fellas, I was sleeping on the job. I'm so sorry about that. I got this. He doesn't. He wakes up. He looks at creation itself. He speaks words that calm it. And then he looks directly at the disciples and asks them, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no, no faith? Jesus is flushing out their fears for them intentionally. He has a purpose in mind here, right? It's almost as if he's asking them, hasn't my calming the storm reminded you that I'm not only a powerful king, but a very loving one? Even though the disciples had seen Jesus perform many other miracles at this point in the gospel record, they had been with Jesus for some time. The sudden prospect of death made them believe their fears more than they believed him. Every one of us can relate to that if we're honest. That's a real life experience that's universal to every Christian. And when we remove the disciples from that immediate scene, you know, a storm, an old wooden boat in the midst of an overwhelming scenario, we see that we fall prey to the same type of thinking that overcame them. Oftentimes our fears will drive us into the type of thinking that makes us forget what God has promised the things that he has told us that he's promised to do for us in our life, and the promises that he gives us that he will care for us, regardless of the situation that we find ourselves in. We find ourselves wondering things, like wondering if we can really know that God's with us, that he's really present in our lives. Wondering if he really truly cares about what we go through and the fears that dog us. And as hard as it is to admit, every one of us at some point has thought the same thing as the disciples and wondered, man, it's like you're just sleeping on the job. Where are you? I need you down here. Everybody's faced that. Other times, though, our fear makes us think that the presence of difficulties is a sign that we're being disobedient to God. And that difficulty that we're facing really is the consequence of that. Now, to be sure, I can give you a personal account and testify to this that foolish and selfish living brings its own consequences. Lord knows I've learned that the hard way. But that's not necessarily always the case. Ultimately, it's God who chooses whether or not we will experience storms in our life and whether he will calm them or whether he will let them run their course. We find a helpful example of that in the book of Acts. Uh, In chapter 27 of the book of Acts, Paul is in chains for preaching the gospel. He's being transported to go before Caesar and stand trial for the accusations that have been brought against him. And in chapter 27, Paul finds himself in the midst of a storm that lasts for days and ends in shipwreck. You see, in that instance, God strengthened Paul with a quiet faith to endure the storm that he was going through. But here in the episode that we're studying this morning, God quiets the storm so that the disciples could see the weakness of their faith that they possessed. The common theme for both episodes is that God determines what will happen according to his sovereign control and care. For you and I at ground zero in day-to-day life, this reshapes the whole idea that difficulties in life are coincidental that they're senseless and meaningless, or that they're purely the result of our own failures. While these things can be true, 
What we see here is that God orchestrates the rise of the storms we find ourselves in. And he intentionally determines their course, their outcome, and their effect on our lives. Now, if we're honest, that's a really hard truth. Because that confronts us both with the intimidating reality that God intentionally brings us into difficulties that he knows will unravel us in some ways. And furthermore, what's even more offensive to our senses is that he calls us to walk in faith with him despite that. God intentionally brings his people into situations that will expose their deepest doubts and fears because he knows the faith question, the question of our faith in Jesus, is the one that every one of us needs to have answered. It must be answered. And that leads to the third question. That's the Christological question. And again, when we, when we say the Christological question, and we simply mean the study of Jesus. We're looking at the scriptures, learning about Jesus, and asking, well, who and what type of person is he? And the disciples asked that in a very real and, and visceral way at the end of this episode. Verse 39 and 41 says, When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. And suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. You see, this act of authority that Jesus displays in the disciples' presence brings them to a new kind of fear. A better way for us to think about it is that it leads them into a sense of awe for who he is and the power that he possesses, even over creation itself. The Gospel of Matthew is helpful here. In, in Matthew's version, in chapter 8, verse 27, he says, And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So it's not like the disciples suddenly looked at the back of the boat and were, hey, who is that guy in the back of the boat? I don't know him. It's that they didn't have a mental category to understand what Jesus had just done right before their eyes. A good example would be as if we ended service and somebody walked out front that you know very well and picked up a truck and walked down the block with it. You'd be like, who are you right now? Furthermore, the power that Jesus exerts over creation isn't some kind of a parlor trick. And it's also not derivative power. If you've read the Old Testament at all, what you see consistently with the Old Testament prophets who God sent, they were men who would call and pray to the Lord, and the Lord would answer that prayer by giving them power and word and deed. But that's not what Jesus does here at all. Jesus doesn't call on anybody else to draw on the power that he has. The power that he exerts over creation is real authority. And scripture over and over again shows us that only God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, possesses the kind of authority that we see Jesus unfolding. In the creation account in Genesis 1, the Lord exerts his power over creation itself. After God speaks everything into existence, the beginning of his creative work and everything that we know as nature begins by him asserting control over the dark, watery chaos that exists, defining where it will exist, what it will be able to do, and its boundaries. The God who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence and the man that we see in the boat are the same being with the same control 
and the same power. But you know what? That's not even the thing that disturbs us the most about this episode when we really think it through. The most disturbing aspect of this episode isn't just seeing Jesus' ability to control creation itself. It's that he led them straight into it. Because oftentimes we live with a nagging sense that God may be doing the same thing in our lives. We don't like that. (laughs) I don't like that. Going back to the Old Testament again, we see a a really beautiful picture of that in the Exodus account. When God liberates the nation of Israel from Egyptian slavery in Exodus, he does it in an incredibly dramatic way that almost seems like it's going to lead to their destruction. In the Exodus account, the God of Israel is depicted as the king and lord of even nature itself. And he leads Israel right to the shore of the Red Sea with the Egyptian army bearing down on them to what seems to be a sure destruction. But in summarizing God's deliverance, Exodus 14 says, That is how the Lord rescued Israel from the hand of the Egyptians that day. And the Israelites saw the body of the Egyptians washed up on the seashore. And when the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. Psalm 107 gives an even more vivid picture of why God would lead us into difficulties. Psalm 107 is considered a psalm of thanksgiving, and it describes the different ways that God delivers his people. And in it, he says, speaking of God's people, some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. That could be right out of the gospel. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. In verse 24 and 25, we see that it's God that intentionally leads his people into the storm and raises it up around them. And when they cry out to them, he saves them. The people saw his wondrous works. They saw that he raised up the storm around him. And when he delivered them, what was their response? They praised the Lord because of his amazing love. Because they saw it so clearly. Oftentimes, God's love and care for us is most clearly seen and understood in life's life's greatest troubles. That's not always the case. But those tend to be life-changing events when we see the power and the mercy of God operating in our darkest moments. As we experience God carrying us through life's difficulties safely, as a result, our faith begins to grow. And we begin to be able and willing to follow him in ways that previously we wouldn't be, knowing that his love never fails us. Now, if you're, if you're a lawyer at heart, or you're a lawyer in real life, this leads to a great question that we like to levy against the God of the heavens and the earth. It's that, is it really fair that he does that? Is it really fair that God does that to us? 
Does God really have the right to do that? And why would he do that? Why would he lead us into things that unravel us? You see, the Lord doesn't do these things in our lives because he can, and so we will praise him. He's not, a, he's not an egomaniac. Ultimately, it's motivated out of his love for us. There's an often overlooked detail um, and a significance in this detail in verse 38 that I mentioned earlier, and that's, it's almost a throwaway detail that says Jesus was in the back of the boat sleeping. Okay, what's that mean? I guess, all right. And scholars really have different um, views on why they think that uh, detail is in there. In a very pragmatic way, in a very real and human way, Jesus is sleeping because he was tired. It's a radical revelation, right? You heard that here first. He was tired because he was teaching all day long on the seashore. And he got in the boat and went across the lake in pitch black. And he was so worn out that he fell asleep in the back of the boat. But you know what the reality that he was sleeping also points us to? The fact that he was human. The God who created the heavens and the earth and has power over everything took on human flesh and lived like you and I do. He experienced all the same frailties and fears and insecurities that you and I did. He experienced tiredness to the point of sleeping through a storm. Why did he take on human flesh? It was because of his relentless love for you and I. You see, Jesus came and took on human flesh to take on the ultimate storm for us. When faced with the crucifixion and the judgment of sin, Jesus experienced fear. If you've read the account of him in the garden praying with the disciples, he is riddled with fear at what he's about to face. But instead of turning away, Jesus turned the bow of his ship straight into the storm for you and me. A storm that we could never face ourselves to set us free from the sin that keeps us in bondage. Hmm. Jesus faced the ultimate storm and sin for us, and he overcame the ultimate threat, defeating death on our behalf. In doing this, he has set us free, not only from death and judgment, but even the fear of death itself. That's what Hebrews 2.14 and 15 highlights. The scriptures say, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil, who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Jesus faces judgment and death in our place so that we can be free from our fear of it and its consequences for us. Sin, death, and judgment have no place as a disciple in your life any longer. We heard this in our um, gospel reading today, as Rob so eloquently said, we could read this constantly. This is why Romans 8 speaks to the power and the beauty of God's loving grip for us with such force. Saying, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. 
In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, the Lord leads you into every season in life in the firm grasp of his love for you. There is no difficulty that can snatch you from the palm of his hand. There is no storm that can overtake you and rob you from God's love and protection. And because of that, because God faced and defeated the ultimate storm for us, we can follow him into every season in life, knowing that they will increase our faith in his love and care for us, not only in this life, but the life to come. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy. We thank you that you are the Lord of creation and you are the God who reveals himself in the storms. We thank you for the way that you are so persistent in your patience and kindness with us, helping us not only to see our feeble faith, but to see how your love will help us grow spiritually in following you and walking through this life. Lord, we thank you most of all that you have come and taken on our ultimate enemy for us. And that you have overcome the things that we cannot overcome our own. And because of that, we can learn to walk free of our fears, regardless of what may come. Knowing that our eternal hope with you is secure. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.